we're in Mark chapter 10, so we have some work to do. Uh, we got to chapter 10, verse 30 last Wednesday night. Um, now, um, question, why can't you have two places to park your boat? Because that's a paradox. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Um, last week, we began our series of paradoxes of, of that Jesus gave us. If you recall, we've been looking at the paradoxes and Jesus gives us several here. Uh, it's kind of a new uh, tactic that he's using in teaching. Um, and we've seen it thus far. The first one, verses one through 12 of chapter 10, the two shall be one. And we talked about marriage last week uh, and then divorce and remarriage. We covered some of that stuff last week. Paradox number two was verses 13 through 16. Um, so the, the first one was the, the, the two shall be one. Um, the second paradox uh, was grownups shall be as children. And that was verses 13 through 16. Uh, we saw not to be childish, but we've been called to be childlike, uh, have a faith like a child, learning to depend on and trust Jesus. We talked about that last week. Uh, paradox number three, we saw the poor shall become rich. You know, and the other side is true. The, the rich shall become poor. We looked at Laodicea and Smyrna and saw that juxtaposition between those two churches. Um, and in this, you know, verse 21, we saw the, the, your treasure gets, uh, you can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead, your treasure in heaven. Um, and, um, you know, it's, and it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And we saw that. But with good news, we kind of started to wrap that section up when Jesus said, you know, it is impossible. Remember the disciples? Oh, well, then who can go to heaven? Um, but Jesus said, well, with man, that's impossible. But with God, all things become possible. Even you and I can be saved and go to heaven because with God, all things are, are, are possible. And we saw that. Um, and, and then we finished up in verses 28 through 30, which is kind of the ending of the poor shall be rich, the rich shall be poor. Because um, if you remember, in light of what you know, Jesus was talking, and it all kind of kicked into gear with the discussion about the rich young ruler, and he wasn't willing to leave all and follow Jesus, if you recall. So that's what you know, sprung Peter to open his mouth once again. Uh, there in verse 28, you know, we've left all. Um, now, why did Jesus say that? He's, he's basically saying, um, what do we get? Since we left all, you know, what, what do we get out of the, the whole thing? And, and, um, and uh, you know, we've followed you. And Jesus kind of answered saying, remember, you know, you're gonna have, you might leave father and mother, but you're never gonna run out of fathers and mothers in the church. There's gonna be thousands of mothers and fathers in the church. And, and Jesus is giving us that notion, you can't outgive God. You might give up some to follow Christ, but you'll get back so much more, uh, including uh, family. Uh, Jesus, by the way, doesn't correct Peter, uh, you know, because did Peter really leave all? Well, the evidence is that he still has a home in Capernaum and um, he's, the Lord's gonna use his home for various things. Uh, we've seen that in the gospel narrative. So he still has a home and he still has a wife, um, still has a mother-in-law. Though he hasn't left all, he, you know, um, he, uh, he said we've left all, but uh, that's not really the case. But Jesus doesn't call Peter out on that. Um, you know, more information on Peter's question, by the way, I didn't go over this last week because we we're sort of running out of time, but um, there, there's more. Matthew, again, marks the, the sort of the Cliff Notes version, the speedy version of the gospel. And there's more, you know, if you recall in Matthew chapter 19, verse 27, 
Um, there was a little more. Then Peter answered and said, Behold, we have forsaken all and follow thee. What shall we have therefore? You know, that, that's where I get that whole idea of what do we get out of this that we followed you and left all and followed you. Um, and by the way, um, one of the things I think we have to kind of think about as the right way of thinking is you and I, we don't follow Jesus, um, at least we shouldn't, um, to get everything out of it necessarily. We, we do uh, to a degree, but um, you accept Jesus to get something out of it. Uh, salvation, eternal life, to accept the work of the cross. But to follow Jesus, you don't follow Jesus to get something out of it. You follow him because of what he did for you. That's a good reason to follow Jesus because he gave it all for me. I should be willing to follow him. So that's, um, you know, we follow Jesus for what he's done. We don't follow Jesus for what we get. I hope you see that. Um, but what does Peter get for following Jesus? Well, he ends up on a cross upside down dying in a horrible, torturous state. Um, I think that's an important thing to remember when you hear these, you know, people that preach in, you know, giant uh, churches about victory and how God's gonna, you know, give you a great, wonderful life. Everything's gonna be perfect. You're gonna be healthy and wealthy and all that stuff. Well, none of the Bible characters really uh, lived that out. Most of them died torturous deaths. Paul, Jesus, Peter, uh, James, uh, even John was, they tortured him, you know, I mean, I mean, this idea that we're gonna outlive all prosperous and perfect, that's just a westernized American sort of gospel. That's not a gospel at all, actually. So watch out for that. Um, you know, you may accept Christ and things could be quite a bit worse. Um, uh, and, and that's kind of what Peter's gonna have to figure out, and he will. But one thing you gotta mark about Peter long-term is he stuck with it, and he followed Jesus even to death. And, um, and now... Peter safely tucked away in heaven. Do you think Peter regrets following Jesus? Not one bit, neither will you. If you follow Jesus, even if you suffer for Christ's sake, you will not ever regret you know, that following Jesus. It's not because it's gonna be awesome. It's because following Jesus is the way. It just is. Um, so paradox number one, the two shall be one. Paradox number two, grownups shall be like children or become as children. And paradox number three, the poor shall be rich. And that picks us up to the, Fourth paradox in this chapter, um, the first shall be last. Jesus is gonna share that with us there in verse 31. It says, but many that are first shall be last and the last shall be first. Now, this is not completely uh, disconnected from the previous discussion about the poor shall be rich. Uh, the first shall be last. These are linked, but it is uh, the, uh, the fourth uh, paradox Jesus teaches. And um, <clears throat> he's gonna show us this in kind of an interesting uh, way there. Uh, in, in the first shall be last, the last shall be first. You know, I wonder, you know, if we took this to heart and really believed what Jesus says in this little sentence, verse 31, uh, if we really believed that, what would we go around doing all day? Trying to be last. I mean, if you think about this, how, how, how much did you work at that today, trying to be last? Last in line. Last to eat, uh, last to get your payment, or last to um, you know fill in the blank. You know we we uh, we drive for what is first, and you know I've I've found not only do we strive for that, we jockey, struggle, plan, manipulate, um, you know, uh, attempt to get an edge on other people, to make it happen, to be ahead of everybody else, to be um, you know whether it's like a financial being ahead or a relational being ahead or or occupational or ministry even. I've seen this whole first shall be last 
conundrum happen, even in ministry. One of the ugliest things you'll ever see is church people jockeying for position in the church. Um, that's an ugly, ugly thing. Maybe you guys have been part of committees. And it's, um, I've never been in a committee in a church. Uh, that's, that's something I've never done. That's something Athey Creek's never done. Um, committees, you can do that if you want for your secular job, but I don't think committees were the way you're supposed to do things biblically. I'll show you more about that in a second. But, you know, Jesus would remind us the paradox of the, that in the kingdom, it is the first that shall be last, the last shall be first. Anyone that's first in this earth, on this earth, um, uh, you know, is end up, gonna end up in last place. Uh, does that mean you should just uh, lollygag and do nothing? Say, well, I'm just going for last place, you know, like, well, that's not really what Jesus is talking about. Um, in fact, Jesus is gonna demonstrate that right here about the first being last. See, you gotta remember, just to kind of set the stage for the next part of this chapter, the disciples still think that Jesus is coming to set up his kingdom this time. They missed in the Old Testament Hebrew Bible, and I, I can't really blame them because I believe that God actually purposefully sort of hid, hid the, the two advents. Um, uh, one of the things that God does is conceal truths for time. Some of the truths in the Bible are meant to be time release. In other words, you won't fully understand, especially when we talk about prophecy, some of those prophecies were not meant to be understood. Remember, uh, Daniel didn't understand half the book he wrote. Uh, I, Daniel, was astonished and didn't understand what I read. So what did Daniel go do? Anybody remember? He just went about the king's business, did the work. He, he did what he knew. He knew he was supposed to serve the king and he was supposed to be a good you know, guy. And, and he prayed and fasted, and did all the good things a Bible-believing you know, Jewish guy in Babylon should do. I love Daniel for that. He didn't understand all of the stuff. Um, but he just kept plugging away and going, that's what you and I should do. But one of the fun things, I, I, I really believe you and I are very privileged um, if you look at Christians throughout history. One of the reasons I think we're privileged is we live, I believe, in the last days. Things are becoming sharp, clear, prophetically. Things that we didn't understand. Uh, even 20, 30 years ago, we were kind of like, well, you know, I mean, if you get the mark of the beast, what's that gonna be? Maybe it's a, a, you know, the lines of the UBC symbol and they'll tattoo it on your forehead and they'll scan your forehead. With, now we've got quantum chips that are biochips that can, you know, uh, regenerate re, uh, battery power with the heat of your body and, you know, like, and, and store all kinds of information. Like there's so many, there's so many ways the mark of the beast could happen now. Uh, and, and not only that, but the whole cashless society. And I mean, there's whole countries already going to that. Um, and this idea of a mark is not, it's not even slightly far-fetched anymore. It's actually, you know, um, you know, with a central banking system that's, you know, they're, they're trying to get up and running. Uh, that's just setting the stage perfectly for what the Bible says is gonna happen uh, with the buying and selling of goods and the mark of the beast and the coming world, new world government. Like all that's just perfectly lining up. We're living in exciting times because we get to see in a more focused way some of these Bible prophecies. The poor disciples, they were, you know, first century believers and they really didn't understand that Jesus was coming in a first coming uh, to be the suffering savior. And then he would later come in a second coming to be the conquering king, which we've yet to see that um, throughout history, but that's gonna happen. And I believe we're coming close to that. But, <laughs> you know, this idea of, um, you know, the first shall be last, Jesus is gonna demonstrate that because they want him still to be first. You're gonna be the king. You're gonna take over the Roman Empire. You're gonna you know, rescue the Jews from the iron fist of Rome. You're gonna be first. 
But Jesus said, no, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. And then listen to what he says. Uh, again, now this is gonna be familiar. If you've been going through the gospels with us here at Athey for the last several months, Matthew and Mark, this is something Jesus says over and over again. It says in verse 32, and as they were in the way going up to Jerusalem and Jesus went before them, they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. And he took again the 12 and began to tell them what things should happen to, unto him, saying, behold, we go up to Jerusalem and the son of man shall be delivered unto the chief priest and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death and shall deliver him to the Gentiles. And they shall mock him and shall scourge him and shall spit upon him and shall kill him. And the third day he shall rise again. Is there any ambiguity there? Is Jesus kind of mincing his words and talking in mystery here? like? Uh, this is like, okay, disciples, here's what's gonna happen. We're gonna go to Jerusalem. They're gonna hate me. They're gonna kill me, crucify me. You know, then I'll, on the third day, I'll rise again from the dead. You know, um, what's the disciples' response? We're gonna see. They're gonna argue about which one of them is the greatest. Uh, they, they don't get it. And they're, they're thinking, boy, this must be, you know, some weird thing Jesus is talking about. They, I'm pretty sure they didn't understand a lot of the things Jesus talked about. Um, sometimes they admitted they didn't understand it and Jesus explained it a little more in detail. Other times like, yeah, I've got it, Lord. <laughs> cool, what did he just mean? I have no idea what he, but and it's like, it's really funny because I see that in myself sometimes. Um, but uh, that's what these guys are doing. But Jesus spells it out. And, and this is the first shall be last, the last shall be first. Jesus is gonna demonstrate the ultimate servant. Um, you know, uh, if you wanna be great in the kingdom of God, you gotta become a servant. And Jesus is gonna model that. Philippians 2, may, he made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a servant in the likeness of men and became obedient even to the death of the cross. Jesus is gonna perfectly model the first shall be last and the last shall be first. So one thing you gotta remember though is Jesus always here, um, there in, in uh, verse 34, he always, when he's telling the disciples about this, he always tags at the end, but I'll rise again on the third day. And, um, you know, I, I do wonder, you know, wasn't, wasn't there anybody taking notes at these meetings? Like, 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 this is so amazing to me that on the third day, the disciples were not looking for his resurrection, really, for the most part. Um, even though Jesus told them this several times, hey, on the third day, I will rise again. Um, and the reason that is so interesting to me is, um, for so many reasons, this is interesting. One is um, it reminds me to remember what the Bible says. We don't wanna be forgetting the prophecies about Jesus. I think there's a lot of people who've forgotten Bible prophecy and so they're in the dark. And when things happen, they'll be, what's going on? And all you guys that show up at Prophecy Update, you'll be saying, well, here's what's going on here because we've been studying the Bible and we'll tell you what. It is. But, but these poor disciples, nobody wrote down, oh yeah, on the third day he's gonna rise again, okay. Uh, got that. Uh, if they kill you, we'll be looking for that. Nobody did that. Nobody said that. Um, now, this is another thing because um, there's an interesting thing, the secularist, the atheist, or the, um, uh, you know, the, the person who is searching but doesn't really know, they, they, the people that try to you know, uh, understand, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Because that is the hinge upon which Christianity swings. If Jesus didn't raise up from the dead, then Christianity is a farce. So we believe that Jesus raising up from the dead is the whole thing. But what I love about the, the resurrection of our savior is the provability of it. There's nothing more provable, I think, in all of ancient history 
um, you know, uh, of any writing, of any source, of any religion. There's nothing more provable than the resurrected Jesus. And, you know, one of the things that you constantly hear, well, you know, maybe these guys were delusional, you know, and maybe they, they were just, you know, believing what he said. And so they were telling everybody he rose from the grave. Um, you gotta remember, these guys weren't even expecting him to do what he told them they would do. Like the narrative goes totally opposite of what you would say if you're making up a religion and you're trying to reinforce something or make up something about a resurrected savior. Um, it's, it's almost like the disciples are um, unaware of this at the time, but they're gonna be one of the best proofs that Jesus really rose from the grave because they forgot all, forgot all about what he said he was gonna do. Um, and not only that, we have that source of the resurrected savior, not only from the Jews who some people, well, they're just a religious cult and they follow Jesus. But you gotta remember, there were three sources that were talking about a resurrected Jesus. The Christians, the disciples, the Jewish people. Did the Jews, do you think they were interested in making sure people didn't believe Jesus rose from the dead? You better believe they wanted that, that message to never get out. Um, the third group, who was that, anybody? The Romans, the Romans also were very interested in squelching this whole Jesus thing of him raising from the dead because you know, that was nothing but work, work, work for the Romans. You know, having Jesus rise from the dead would undo what they, they caused to happen, the death of a Jew on a Roman cross. Um, and so everybody was interested uh, in you know, finding the resurrected Jesus or proving that he was dead. All they would have had to produce is his body, his bones in a tomb, but nobody did that. Um, boy, I, I'm just scratching the surface. Uh, and there's some great scholarship that has exhaustively looked at the resurrection of Jesus from the archeological point of view, from the, uh, you know, uh, all, all different, you know, uh, you know angles of, of his, historic evidence. Uh, it's really the most provable fact in all of history. I don't say that lightly. Um, there's a lot of work that's been done on that. Well, um, Jesus was speaking of his death here, but he also, as he always does, brings up his resurrection. He goes on in verse 35 uh, here with a story. Um, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come unto him saying, Master, we would that uh, thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we desire. Um, Jesus just said, I'm gonna die and I'm gonna rise from the grave. Hey, will you do whatever we ask, Jesus? Do you get a sense the disciples aren't really catching what's, what's going on here? Uh, just a little sense of that. Um, now, Jesus is so gracious. Listen to what he says, verse 36. And he said unto them, what would you that I should do for you? And they said unto him, grant unto us that we may sit one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand in thy glory. Um, but Jesus said unto them, you know not what you ask. Can you drink the cup that I drink of? and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said unto him, we can. <laughs> and Jesus said unto them, you shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of. And with the baptism that I am baptized with all, you shall be baptized. But to sit on the, my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. And when the 10 heard it, they began to be much displeased with James and John. <laughs> oh, now Mark's account here just kind of cracks me up. Um, do you guys remember in Matthew's account, there's a, a, a apparent controversy of a contradiction in the Bible. Um, who, who brought this question to Jesus in Matthew's account? Mommy, James and John's mommy. 
Uh, hey, Jesus, can I ask you a question? Sure. And James and John are standing over there. Come on, ask him, ask him. See, um, I don't believe these are in contradiction. These stories are just, um, Mark's telling us the quick version. And the disciples are not mad at the mother for asking in Matthew. They're mad at James and John for asking. Um, uh, and most scholars believe that G James and John sort of put their mother up to asking Jesus if they could sit on his right and his left. Um, but everybody kind of knows it was really James and John who really wanted to ask the question. And, uh, and so I believe these are perspectives of the same story and it's not a contradiction at all. It's really the same story, um, but they did put their mother up to uh, doing the initial part of the conversation. But when it gets down to it, it was James and John who said, well, Lord, we wanna sit on your right and on your left. Um, now, um, it's interesting, Jesus saying, you don't know what you're asking about there. Uh, isn't it interesting, you know, why, why would they bring that up here? Um, and I'm not really 100% sure. It was either total um, thickness that they didn't understand that Jesus was just saying he's gonna die on a cross. Um, or, or maybe this is the way James and John are sort of probing because Jesus said, I'm gonna go to Jerusalem. They're gonna, you know, it's, he, he spelled it out. Uh, the, the chief priest uh, and the scribes are gonna condemn me to death. Uh, they're gonna scourge me and spit on me and shall uh, eventually kill me. And on the third day, I'm gonna rise again. So you, you wonder, is James and John asking this question thinking, yeah, but first you're gonna, before you die, which must be a long time from now, or like you can almost picture, they're trying to maybe clarify the situation. Um, yeah, but you're gonna, you're gonna be a king, right? You're gonna be the king in Jerusalem. Can I sit on your right hand and your left? Um, and Jesus says, you, you really don't know what you're talking about here, uh, which is pretty clear <laughs> that they don't know. Um, uh, but I love how Jesus answers them. He's so gracious. He doesn't say, you idiots, don't you understand what I just said 10 seconds ago? Like, that's what I would have said. Um, but Jesus is very gracious. Oh, Lord, help me to be more like Jesus. Uh, because Jesus, he says, well, you know, you, you, you don't know what you're asking, uh, but um, are you ready to drink the, the cup that I'm gonna drink? Does anybody remember what's the cup that Jesus is gonna drink? The cup of suffering. We saw that in the Garden of Gethsemane. Oh, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, the cup of, of suffering. Um, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done, Jesus prayed, perfect prayer. Um, so they're like, yeah, we can drink that cup. Uh, where is it? Uh, bottoms up, you know, like, uh, uh, what cup do you want us to drink? Um, uh, are you able to be baptized with the baptism? Uh, what's the baptism he's talking about? Anybody? Yes, the baptism of his death. That's why when we're baptized, it's a, a picture of his death and we're crucified with Christ and buried with Christ. And we come up a new creation in Christ. The baptism of death is what's going on that's what he's talking about. Are you guys really ready to, to follow me and drink the cup of suffering and be into that baptism of death? We are. And we all laugh at that because they don't, it's clear they don't know what he's talking about. But I think we should be careful when we laugh because did you hear what Jesus said? You will drink of the cup that I drink and you will be baptized. Like it is sobering. They said, we, we are, and we laugh at that, but they did and they stuck with it. Oh, maybe not right this minute. You know, I don't think they were mature enough to do what they were going to do long-term, but it wouldn't be that much longer where James and John would be tested in this. And uh, they and all the other disciples, apart from Judas Iscariot, would withstand the test of martyrdom and persecution 
uh, and these guys would drink the cup of suffering. Um, the, the narratives of how the disciples were killed, it's pretty humbling. Um, I, I wonder if we are like those guys. We say, Lord, I, I will follow you at all costs. And the Lord kind of goes, we'll see about that. Or does the Lord say, you know what? I, you may not do that right now and you may not know even what you're talking about right now, but you will follow me at all costs. Like I, I hope I'm that believer that I know I don't get it fully now, but I hope I will be faithful and I hope you will too. I hope we will be a faithful bunch, even if bad times come, even if a cup of suffering does cross our way. Um, but, um, uh, but all this to say, I don't think the disciples are getting it because the end of the story is, wow, what did he just say? No, the end of the story is, not James and John, what a bunch of jerks. That was the end of the story here. They're, they're, they're mad at James and John, verse 41. Um, this is interesting. Um, and again, this first shall be last, last shall be first. James and John wanting to sit at his right and left and they thinking that they're bigger than Peter or, or you know, better, be, better than the other disciples. This is an unhealthy spiritual competition that can happen. Um, one of the reasons I learned as a young man not to like pastor conferences um, and people, people probably, you know, Brett, do you go to pastor conferences? Almost, well, never. I never, in fact, I'm trying to think if I've gone to a pastor conference since I started Athey Creek back in 96. I think maybe one, uh, but I'll tell you why it's always been, maybe I've been at the wrong pastor conferences, but there's this weird sort of jockeying for position that happens sometimes. And it feels really uncomfortable to me. It's like, who's sitting in the first seats? Remember, Jesus talked about those who wanted to sit up in the upper seats because they're, and there's this thing that can happen within pastors that um, I just never really liked that much. And if, if you try to be quiet and humble, then they're like, you're a pastor and you're quiet and humble, you sit in the back, you get out of here. Like, like it's, it's a funny thing uh, where it tends to happen. And uh, Tad can back me up on this. Tad and I, I think you were with me at the last pastor's conference, right? And it was probably one of the worst days of our life. Uh, <laughs> I, is that fair to say, Tad? Yeah, see, Tad's affirming that. I know it might sound weird, but yeah, it was just kind of wacko. And, um, but, um, but you know, whether it's uh, un unhealthy competition between pastors or, or even church leadership, we've seen, you know, in, in church leaderships uh, where people try to jockey for position and try to move into places of power and, and stuff. It's really tricky if everybody's trying to be the servant and one person starts to jockey for that powerful position in a church that everybody's trying to be servants, uh, it starts to rub people the wrong way and it starts to go wacko. We've even seen that here at Athey from time to time where people come in and they're kind of just laying low and just kind of helping out. But eventually it kind of becomes a thing where they start to surface as wanting to be sort of thought of as more important or key man or whatever. And when that happens, uh, that's the beginning of the end, I think, for that person's ministry. There's no end to a, a, what God can do through someone who's humble. Um, but as soon as you start like trying to be the big shot, I think that's gonna be the end. Um, the Lord, you know, he humbles people, he raises men up and he puts men down. Uh, I think that's true in church leadership. I think that's even true sometimes long-term in politics. Um, but um, that's why, you know, it's, you gotta be careful. If you're part of AC Creek, um, wouldn't it be great if all of us together, because if one of you try to be the big shot or if I'm trying to be the big shot as a pastor, um, then it kind of breaks down. Uh, it breaks down the whole thing. What we should all be doing is saying, how can I be a servant? How can I serve uh, others and servant leadership is the biblical model to try to serve. And now, now that, that doesn't mean that uh, uh, someone who's in a leadership role can't correct direction and correct bad attitudes and stuff like that. 
Um, uh, that, that doesn't mean that, you know, it takes all the leadership control and qualities out of a person. It just means that there needs to be a doing, doing it with the attitude of a servant, um, which is hum- humility. Jesus models that, by the way, perfectly. Um, um, and so, um, you know, when it comes to decision-making at Athe Creek, um, we just try to follow as, as biblical of a model as we know how. Um, I am not the one who steers the church. Some people think that because I'm the big mouth. Um, I sit up here and talk. You're like, oh, there's Pastor Brett. He must really, I'm not the guy. We have a group of governing elders. We call them governing elders. The, the um, New Testament Greek word, I believe, is episkopos, which is where we get the word bishop. We don't call them bishops because other denominations have turned that into a weird thing. Guys with pointy hats with sensors of smoke and bishop, or you're, you're like you're playing chess or something. So we don't call them bishops here at Athey. But that's that, that episcopus, they're governing elders, elders that are qualified to be an elder, but they also have that role to be a governing or board of elders. That's what we have here at Athey. And I submit to that board of elders and I'm so thankful for them. Now, uh, we've heard from time to time some guy who thinks he knows something. Yeah, Brett's just got a bunch of elders. They're just a bunch of yes men. Uh, I dare you to say that to any one of my elders. They are not yes men. They are not weak. They're very uh, strong. Uh, But the good news is, unlike the person who just said that stupid thing, um, they are servant leaders, our governing elders. That's how it works, by the way. Our governing elders are servant leaders. And and for, uh, for that to work, we have to come into that governing role uh, as a servant. Uh, we don't have governors who walk in, okay, I'm, I'm gonna tell you guys what we're gonna do here. Nope, we talk about everything that we're doing at Athe Creek, we pray about it. And if we don't have an agreement, we continue to pray about it. If we don't have a unanimous agreement, we will not do that. We will not move on anything until we have unanimous, which um, getting any group of guys to agree on anything is hard. But our governing elders is an example, I think, of miraculous servant leadership at work. And we've, we've been blessed uh, to see that in work uh, for 27 years. And the Lord has blessed Athey because of that, I think. Um, I think it's one of the dumbest things in the world if a pastor becomes the guy in charge. I have friends who've taken that role who've gone to be the large and in-charge pastor and, hey, I'm the guy in charge. You know, I started this church, you know, and so you better do what I say. I'm the, I'm the one who cares more about this church than anybody else because I started the church. I've watched that and you wanna watch a church crumble? Just get more and more of that attitude. That will not fly. I think the Lord will take that guy out eventually. Um, that's, that's, that's not the way to roll. Um, Jesus is the perfect example. I, I, don't, I, I don't know why I go into that as much as I really wished you could know and see and appreciate. Uh, it's one of the things that happens more behind closed doors here at Athey. The time that you know, governing elders get together and pray and seek the Lord about vision, direction, guidance for the church. Um, I'm so thankful for that. Um, but all that to say, um, you know, this, this is the goal. If you wanna be a, a, a volunteer at Athey Creek, come in with that servant's heart. Uh, not the I'm large and in charge heart. We've had people that come in and audition for the worship team and they might be amazing musicians, um, but they come and say, you know, I was the worship director at my last church and I pretty much know everything there is to know about worship leading. And, and uh, so uh, I'm here to audition, <laughs> but you know, I really should be the next person next Sunday. Um, you probably, we won't, probably won't use you because you scare us to death. That's a scary thing. A worship leader that uh, is full of pride and thinks they're large and in charge, that, that's the last. J. Vernon McGee was right. He said, when the demons fell, they fell right, right into the choir loft. 
That's, that's what he said, Jay Vernon McGee. Um, worship can be a funny thing with people's pride and arrogance. I'm so thankful for our worship crew. Um, all very servant-oriented uh, you know, people that are saying, we wanna just serve the Lord. Um, that's the first thing we look for, by the way, in a person who's a musician, um, which is really cool. Okay, so we got paradox number one. Two shall be one. Grown-ups shall be as children. Three, the poor, the poor shall be rich. Four, the first shall be last. Number five, we have paradox number five. The servant shall rule. That's verse 42. But Jesus called them to him and said unto them, you know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and their great ones exercise authority upon them. Verse 43, mark it well. But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be, your, will be great among you shall be your minister. Um, the word minister means servant. Uh, we, we've turned the word minister, to mean, I'm a minister of the gospel. Oh, you're a minister, oh. Well, the word minister means slave. That's a funny thing. We've changed the meaning of the word minister to be some lofty, oh, he's a minister. He's a man of the cloth. I always know when people don't know me, when I get mail here at Athe Creek, Reverend Pastor Brett Metter, uh, the most holy father, Reverend, you know. Um, it's funny how much mail I get that people that just don't know who I am. Dear Pastor Bert Meeker. Bert, dear... <laughs> <clears throat> Dear friend of mine, Bert, please understand we love your ministry. We, we know we're tuned in to exactly what you're doing, Pastor Bert. And um, <laughs> you know, like, like, it's so funny. But I, the dead giveaway, they don't do who I am. Is, you know, the Reverend Holy Father, Brett. Like, totally ridiculous. Just call me Brett. Um, uh, that's when I know that you know me, uh, is you call me just by my name. Um, but here, you know, um, who is Jesus referring to in verse 42 when he says... Um, you know that they which are accounted of rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. Who's that talking about? Who, who, who? Well, it says you are accounted rule over the Gentiles. Um, this is, we're talking about the Roman, the way the Romans rule. Um, you might say the way the world does it. And the Romans were at the top of the ruling game. You know, um, it's funny how uh, even our government comes, if you know your history, kind of from the Roman sort of practice of government. And, they're, and we, we, we got a lot from sort of that model that just a little bit uh, changed uh, to fit our, you know, founding fathers of our nation. But, but um, the idea of this uh, doing it like the world, verse 43, but it shall, so shall it not be among you. Don't be like the world. Don't govern and rule with that iron fist of Rome. Don't do that like the world. Isn't it funny how the church can start doing church things um, in sort of a worldly way. Uh, they, they, people come from you know, their secular job and say, well, I wanna be part of church leadership. And at our job, we do it this way. So they form committees and they start voting on things and doing stupid things that are nothing like what the church is supposed to do. Um, I think that's a big goof. Uh, it's not a, you know, it's, it's not a, you know, a democracy. The church is not a democracy. It's a theocracy where God is in charge Jesus is the head of the church. We submit to him. And then there's a group of men submitted to Christ with humble attitudes, even as Christ modeled. That's the goal. That's what we want to shoot for. So he says, don't be like those people. Verse 44, and whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. For even the son of man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. You know, feeling pretty good about yourself? Compare yourself with Jesus. I'm a pretty good servant. 
Uh, I remind myself of Moses, meek and humble. It's funny how it's so slippery when you want to be a good servant, but uh, you got to look at Jesus. What would Jesus do? We, we, remember the WWJD bracelets everybody wore? Uh, do you want to know what Jesus did? He was a slave, servant of all, and then died on a cross. That's what Jesus did. Um, how are you doing with your what would Jesus do thing? Uh, I, I'm not trying to mock that. I think it's a good endeavor to be like Jesus, but, but at the same time, ultimately, Jesus you know, made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the the form of a servant, which is amazing that Jesus did that. Um, you know, the old poem, um, I remember as a little kid, I read this and very few poems touched me as a kid. You know, when you're a kid, like, yeah, whatever poems. But I remember reading this line. He, 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 was, he hung upon a piece of wood and yet made the ground upon which he stood. Um, the, Jesus, he was hanging on a cross of wood made by man. And yet he made the ground upon which it stood, like the earth, he made it. That's ultimate power who had creative abilities to create the heavens and the earth, but he submitted himself to puny, wacko humanity. Like that's just such a huge level. I think we have, we're never gonna fully understand Jesus as servant. It's even hard to even picture how, what a huge gap that is. But those are the paradoxes um, that we've looked at. The servant shall rule, that's the fifth of five uh, paradoxes. Well, we continue there in verse 46. It says in verse 46, and they came to Jericho and as he went out of Jericho, quick trip, with his disciples and a great number of people, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the highway side begging. And when he had heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And charged, uh, charged him that he should hold his peace. And he cried the more a great deal, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. And they call the blind man saying unto him, be of good comfort, rise, he calleth thee. And he casting away his garment rose and came to Jesus. What's that word rose mean? Jump. He jumped up, verse 51, and Jesus answered and said unto him, what wilt thou that I should do unto thee? The blind man said unto him, Lord, that I might receive my sight. <clears throat> and Jesus said unto him, go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. <clears throat> and immediately received his sight and followed Jesus in the way. We looked at blind Bartimaeus uh, on the weekend services. So if you missed that, you can go online and catch up with us on that. Uh, and that brings us to chapter 11. And it says there in verse one, and when they came nigh or near to Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sendeth forth two of his disciples. Um, okay, so uh, there uh, we have this idea of, um, you know, Bethany uh, and Bethphage. Now, I wanna give you a little bit of a bit of geography. First, we, we started in Jericho uh, the, tonight, and, and I already told you this on Sunday, but the exact numbers are kind of interesting. Jericho sits 1,400 feet below sea level. So um, the, right next to Jericho is the Dead Sea, which is the lowest place on earth. Um, so Jericho's down in that little hole in the earth. It's the deepest place in the earth. Then you start going up the hills. As soon as you leave Jericho, you start going up the hill, like the grapevine down in California, same kind of vibe. Um, so you go up the hills of mountains of Israel and you go up 2,700 feet above sea level. So you're actually about a 4,000 foot elevation change and you're going up to Jerusalem. Now, when you come to the backside of Jerusalem through that direction, you would probably pass through Bethphage or um, Bethany 
before you actually got to Jerusalem. It'd be like, you know, you pass through Wilsonville and Tualatin and Tigard before you get to Portland. You'd pass through Beth Vaji and Bethany before you got to Jerusalem. And Jesus, it seems maybe never spent the night in uh, Jerusalem. He always went back to Bethany where his buddies, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were, uh, which is about two and a half miles outside of Jerusalem. So I wanna show you just some pictures to get a point of view because these are kind of famous sort of pictures. Um, this, this right here, of course, is a picture that's most famous of Jerusalem, but it's cool on so many levels. What you're seeing there in that picture, especially on our big screen up behind me there, um, you people at home are missing out on that, but um, you're looking at the Temple Mount. Basically, the Golden Dome is the Dome of the Rock Shrine. It's not a mosque. It's the Dome of the Rock Shrine. If you look to the left, there's a gray dome uh, you know, um, and that's the Al-Aqsa Mosque there of the Muslims there on the Temple Mount. But that's the Temple Mount, that old uh, wall. Now the wall you're looking at there is uh, really modern. It's a modern wall. It was only built 500 years ago uh, by the Ottoman Empire. Uh, but they built that wall on top of the other walls. And if you, dig, if you were to dig a hole, and some people have, and on the inside of these walls, they dig down. The walls just keep going down. Uh, they continue all the way to the Solomon era of the Temple Mount, which is really cool. But um, you are looking at the Temple Mount. Now, this is the view from standing on the Mount of Olives. Now, if you're standing on the Temple Mount, um, this is a picture we took uh, while we were standing on the Temple Mount. That's some of the olive trees that are on the Temple Mount. That's looking up to the hill or the Mount of Olives um, <clears throat> where that picture was taken. Um, and, and you can see, in fact, if you kind of back away and look at some of these angles um, uh, this is where the Garden of Gethsemane was, kind of halfway up that hill is the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus uh, prayed. It's a great place to visit. We stop there when we're in Israel and we spend some time praying and um, it's just a great time there. But, um, but this, this is the, they also call it Mount Scopus. The Romans called it that because it sounds like I'm making this up, but it's, uh, they call it because it's where they could go and in Latin scope out the situation. Uh, and, they, and they kept an eye on Jerusalem from Mount Scopus. Uh, that's, that's where that word scoping comes from. But, um, but uh, you know, so if, if you turn around from the top of that mountain, again, this is one of the great shots of Jerusalem at nighttime. Uh, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful place to stand. Whether you're there early in the morning or at dusk, um, this is where some of those beautiful shots of Jerusalem are. Um, when the sun hits the, the hills in Jerusalem there at a certain time of day, it's just amazing because the Jerusalem limestone, which by the way, everything has to be built by code in Jerusalem. If you build a house or a building or a store, you gotta use Jerusalem limestone. You can't use you know, um, any other surfaces. That's why the whole city, it kind of has the same color and hue. Uh, but when the sun hits it at that certain time of night, they, that's why they call it the golden city. Um, but all that to say, uh, this is again looking now, now, now I'm standing, if you can picture all these pictures I just showed you and I'm standing on the Mount of Olives. If you turn around and do a 180 from where you're standing right here taking this picture, if you turn around and you walk for 15 minutes down the other side of the Mount of Olives and toward the other area, um, I'm gonna say eastward, then what's interesting is you go, you end up bumping into Bethany. So you got a picture, Jesus would go, to the Temple Mount, we're gonna see this tonight. He's gonna, he's gonna go down the Palm Sunday Road, which I just showed you. <laughs> um, and then he's gonna go uh, back into Bethany, hang out with Mary, uh, Mary Martha Lazarus. And then he's gonna go down again into Jerusalem. 
I want you to see this. There's a few reasons why the geography is kind of important to me. I'll show you perhaps why uh, as we get further. So um, that's what it is. Jesus is you know, near to Jerusalem. He's in Bethlehem and Bethany uh, at the Mount of Olives. So he's on the backside of the Mount of Olives and he sent forth two of his disciples. Verse two. And he said unto them, go your way into the village over against you. And as soon as you be entered into it, you shall find a colt tied <coughs> where, uh, whereon never man sat. Loose him and bring him. And if any man say unto you, why ye do this? Um, uh, say that the Lord hath need of him. And straightway he will send him th uh, hither. Um, okay, so did Jesus prearrange this? Uh, at an earlier date, uh, or is this just something orchestrated miraculously by God? Uh, you'll find scholars that argue about it. Jesus must have went in there and made arrangements with some dude. Um, <laughs> I like to think of it more as a miracle. I don't have problems with miracles and stuff like that in the Bible, nor should you. If you believe God created the heavens and the earth, then you shouldn't worry about a colt being tied in on a tree at the right time. Are, are you guys good with that? It's funny, some of these scholars try to explain away the miracles, and I don't know why they feel the need to do that, but um, watch out for that, by the way. Um, now he's gonna, gonna ride on a colt. Why didn't he choose something a little more impressive? Um, well, again, the disciples, they're still thinking he's gonna be the king over the Romans and the Jews. Um, you know, Alexander the Great would do the same thing. He would ride into Jerusalem from the same direction, only on Bucephalus. Um, you know, Alexander the Great... Uh, was impressive. And that horse, uh, Eucephalus, was one of the most impressive horses in history. Um, why would Jesus ride a donkey? Now, um, we, we all know this because of humility and it's fulfilling prophecy. We'll talk about that more in a second. But I wanna throw something out to you that maybe you haven't considered, perhaps. Um, uh, a king riding a donkey seems so goofy to us. Especially when you go to Israel, with, if, uh, there'll be places you can ride camels and donkeys. Sometimes Athe Creekers will, you know, ride a donkey. There's no way to look cool and ride a donkey. Uh, you can look cool and ride a camel, just kind of swaying up there, way up on uh, the camel. And even when it's, when it's going down on stage, like, whoa, you know, ah, but, but uh, when it's riding along, you can look pretty cool riding a camel. But a donkey's like, <laughs> like donkeys are so not cool. Um, so it's always interesting to me that Jesus is riding a colt of a donkey, uh, not cool. But I, I wanna throw out something for you to think about, but did you know that it was not unusual for the kings of Israel to ride donkeys? Um, this is something you should know. Just, uh, I'm not sure why I'm telling you this because am I saying, well, Jesus is making a statement that he's the king because he's riding a donkey. I'm not sure I'd go that far to say this, but um, let me just give you one example. First Kings 1 Kings 1.33, um, the king also said unto them, this is David, take with you the servants of your Lord and cause Solomon, my son. Um, this is when he's gonna be crowned king. Solomon, my son, to ride upon mine own mule and bring him down to Gihon. This is when Solomon, one of the greatest kings that ever lived, was riding in to be crowned. He would ride in on one of David's mules. Um, uh, Give Solomon my best donkey, as <laughs> um, what he was saying. Um, and, and by the way, uh, um, do you remember Absalom was riding a donkey? Uh, you know, like, and he, he was the new king, or so he thought, before he got caught up in his hair and he said, I can't believe it's not Bata. But anyway, that's a whole nother story. No, I just made that part up. But anyway, um, witnessing prophecy about Jesus unfold, 
um, if past prophecies came true, we know that the future ones will too. And that's why the riding of the donkey thing is so important. That was going to be a perfect fulfillment of biblical prophecy. And I'm just gonna go through this quickly. We've gone through this before. But in Zechariah chapter nine, prophecy of the Messiah, rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just, having salvation, lowly. Um, which that's where we do think there's a humility part of the riding of the donkey. Lowly and riding upon an ass, upon the colt of the foal of an ass. Uh, Jesus, by riding into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey, is fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. Um, uh, by the way, that's not the only place in the Old Testament where we see a prophecy about the Messiah uh, being linked to the colt of a donkey. Um, um, uh, by the way, in verse six, I have it marked there. Um, there it says, uh, they, they, they let them go. Uh, uh, in fact, let's read verse four. They went on their way and found the colt tied by the door uh, without in a place where two, two ways met and they loosed the donkey. A certain of them which stood there said to them, what do you loosing the colt? And they said unto them, even as Jesus had commanded, they, uh, and, and they let him go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and cast their garments on him and he sat upon them. Um, so, um, so here's a trick question. Does Jesus need anything? Hmm. In verse three, it says, just tell them the Lord hath need of him. Sorry, you guys have said no. Uh, apparently Jesus does need stuff. The Lord Jesus needed a donkey. And so now I know what you're saying. You're saying Jesus can, uh, he could just speak a donkey into existence. Uh, I get that. But I do wanna kind of maybe put a little chink in your Jesus has need of nothing armor. Um, because Jesus needed a lot of things. If you follow his ministry and his life, he borrowed a donkey. He borrowed a cradle that was actually was a manger of, a, of, of some cows. Um, he borrowed a boat over and over from the disciples and people in Galilee. He took a kid's, he, he needed a kid's loaves and fishes to start the feeding of the 5,000. Um, he needed a tomb that he didn't have, so he borrowed a tomb. He borrowed an upper room for the Last Supper. Like, um, the interesting thing I think we need to understand is Jesus seems to need you and me and whatever we have to offer. And, and the Lord says, I'm gonna use that for my purpose. And Jesus is perfectly modeling that. And I, I just want us to get that out because uh, you might end up having that, oh, Jesus doesn't need anything, especially me, least of all me. But as it turns out, if you read the story, the story of Jesus, he needed a lot of things um, but he lacked for nothing. Uh, that's, what, that's what I think we need to say about that. Just something to think about, a little beef for the bonnet. Um, but what, are, what does the Lord need from you and are you willing to let it go? When I read that these guys let them go, okay, take our colt of a donkey. That was an expensive item in Bible times. Just to let somebody take your colt and say, oh, some guy needs it, okay, knock yourself out. That'd be like some stranger, can I borrow your car? Uh, same thing. Uh, um, well, um, uh, one of the things I love about that is I think the Lord does need people, uh, even in his church, to do great things. The Lord needs, I think, people who are willing to park cars and to sling coffee in the back and teach Sunday school and open their house for a watch party. And, you know, like, like the Lord has need of a lot of things. Uh, and the question is, what are you willing to give? Um, you know, one of my fondest memories uh, moving up to, you know, from Southern Oregon to Portland to start a church is, 
we really didn't know anybody. We finally met this one couple who lived in West Lynn, right behind us. In fact, you could almost see their house if you're looking through those windows up in the hills there. That's where they lived. And, um, but I remember when we uh, first got things going, we started doing our, uh, you know, Sunday services at Athey Creek Middle School, but we, they wouldn't let us use Sunday nights there at the middle school. Um, but this couple, Lloyd and Laurel, would let us use their home for Sunday night worship. And uh, it was awesome because their home was the nicest home I've ever seen. It was huge. I think it was like, I'm just guessing, like over 5,000 square feet. It was one of the West Lynn houses, you know, one of the big fancy ones. And she had, like, Laurel was very good with decor and she just made it look so homey and it was like the most beautiful house. And I just remember watching her as people would trudge in with their shoes and their muddy boots. And uh, I, I wasn't with my muddy boots, but uh, uh, there, were, there were people and they, they just, and, and I just saw Lloyd and Laurel take that with stride. They just opened their home. And we, you know, we started getting to where there was like, you know, a hundred people at our Sunday night worship uh, at their house. Uh, and they'd park them and, and let people in and eat their food. And, and just this couple helped start get AC Creek start going. They were there to, you know, and I, I think the Lord said, I want to use your home. And they were a couple who said, oh, no problem. We did our Bible study there on some Wednesday nights. And we also did our Sunday night worship there. Uh, and then they moved. I remember when they moved, that was three years into Athey Creek. They moved away because a job situation. And I just remember thinking, how's Athey Creek going to continue without Lloyd and Laurel? Because they were such a giving couple. They just gave of, of everything, you know? And they really helped make Athey Creek kind of get off the ground in a lot of ways. Um, but you know what's so amazing is as soon as Lloyd and Laurel left, more and more people kept just giving of their, their homes and their time and their service. And, and it continues on to this day to where now we have over 2,000 volunteers that make Athey Creek run. Um, and it's just an amazing thing to watch. And I think the Lord says, yeah, I need you. Um, I think that's pretty cool. He uses people like us. Um, before you get too highfalutin about the Lord's need for you, don't remember he needs and he uses the weak and the foolish things of this world uh, to confound the wise. Keep that in the back of your mind. Um, but, you know, call back to previous teachings, rich young ruler, he wasn't willing to give up his stuff. Um, back to previous, remember the teaching of Corbin? Jesus said, stop saying Corbin to everybody. They'd say, oh, this is, a, this is a gift of God. Sorry, mom, dad, you can't have that steak or you can't have my lazy boy in the living room. Remember that whole thing? Uh, that's people unwilling to give. And the Lord might say, I have need of those things. So don't be stingy with what the Lord has blessed you with, your home, your time, your wealth, your knowledge. Uh, that's not the way to go. Uh, verse seven. And they brought the colt to Jesus and cast their garments on him and sat upon him. Uh, and many spread their garments in the way and others cut down branches off the trees and strawed them in the way. And they that went before, the, uh, went before and they that followed cried saying, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, again, this is clear, and I'm not gonna take a lot of time with this because we've done tons of teaching on this. Even in Matthew, we talked Palm Sunday. And, but they had the wrong view of he, who Jesus was and what he was coming to do. Uh, they thought he was coming to save them from the Romans, to take back the kingship and the scepter of authority for, for, the, uh, for Jerusalem, for the Jews. But, um, but again, even this, there's more prophecy being fulfilled. Um, would you keep your finger here and go with me to Psalm 118? You'll notice in your margin right here, it says Psalm 118, verse 26. But I wanna show you the context of that. It's Psalm 118, 
Um, verse 26, 22 through 26. Let's read that. Psalm 118, 22 is where we'll pick it up. It says there in verse 22, the stone which the builders refused is become the head of the cornerstone, uh, the headstone of the corner. <clears throat> and this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord, um, which the word there, save now, is Hosanna, by the way. Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord, um, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. Um, this is the Jews believing that Jesus is the Messiah, but a different Messiah than what he really was. They were believing a different kind of Messiah. Um, but I want you to notice verse 22. Um, this is the part they didn't sing, but they should have. Um, remember I told you that Jesus was concealing the first coming and the second coming and the Jews really didn't know what was going on? This is one of the things they missed. Concealed in the whole blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna, saved now, which they knew to be messianic. That's why they're saying this on Palm Sunday in Mark chapter 11, because they know this is messianic, but they forgot this part. It says he would be first the stone which the builders would reject, which would become the head of the cornerstone. That's the part they miss. Uh, they didn't see him as the rejected one. They just kind of thought, we don't know what that stone rejection thing is about, but Hosanna, <laughs> he blessed is he who comes in the Lord. The problem is because they missed that one part. Um, Jesus was the stone rejected by the Jews. That's all throughout the scriptures. Matthew 21, 42. Matthew 10, verses, or pardon me, 12, verses 10 through 11. Luke 20, 17. Um, Acts chapter four, verse 11. Ephesians 2.20, like uh, over and over again, we talk about the rejected cornerstone. It's talked about all, all over in the Bible. Um, and, and, you know, days later, they would cry out, crucify him uh, because he wasn't the, the one they thought. Um, they would reject him because he didn't really deliver what they imagined. Now, um, so, so even the fact that he's about to be rejected is fulfilling prophecy. 300 specific prophecies about Jesus's first coming um, and they really didn't really know what to look for in these prophecies, which is kind of shocking. Well, all that to say, <laughs> excuse me, um, one of the greatest prophecies, by the way, before you leave Psalm 119, if you're still there, um, you know how we sing, this is the day, this is the day that the Lord hath made, that the Lord, and let us rejoice and be glad. And, and it's such a happy, fun song. And I love that song. And we sang it at camp and all that stuff. But what day is that talking about? A light bulb just went on, right? That, I love that. Oh man, I love that. I just saw a light bulb go on. Um, don't feel bad. I just saw this myself. So you're, this is new to me. This is new to me too. Um, when, when it says, this is the day, does this ring a bell? Um, well, it should. And, and, um, and, and let's get, let's, before I answer that fully, let's go to Daniel 9. Flip over to Daniel chapter 9. Uh, and I'm not gonna belabor this. Some of you guys, oh no, not the you know, 70 weeks of Daniel, please. Um, uh, I'm not gonna go fully into it, but I do wanna freshen up on that just to uh, show you just a quick thing. Daniel. And, um, you know, the prophet Daniel, um, in chapter nine, the, one of the great prophecies of the Bible, and it's, and it's, so amazing for so many reasons, but 
One is, uh, is it kind of reveals the day of Palm Sunday when Jesus would ride in Jerusalem. Let me show you how that works. It's just, it's, I'm gonna give you a real fast version. We've done very in-depth studies with graphs and charts of how this all works. So uh, 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 like go to our Daniel chapter nine study on the 70 weeks of Daniel and that'll be fully in depth. But I just wanna remind you, it's, it's verse 25. It says, well, start in verse 24. 70 weeks, Daniel 9, 24. 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. That's Jerusalem, Daniel's people, the Jews. And what's gonna happen? To finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy and anoint the most holy question. When are all those things gonna be check, check, and check? Hello? When is everlasting righteousness gonna be and end of sin? The millennial kingdom, right? So, so this is important. Um, what's it saying? Daniel's hearing 70 weeks are determined on your people in Jerusalem to bring in the millennial kingdom. That's important to know. Um, again, I'm doing the fast version. So he says, verse 25, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem shall the Messiah, the Prince be seven weeks, three score and two weeks. And the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times and after three score and two weeks shall the Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince, or the prince of the people, depending on how your translation puts it, uh, shall come to destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. That's an event called the abomination of desolation. Jesus talked about in Matthew 24, when Jesus, the disciples asked, what about the end of the world? Um, so uh, verse 27, and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of that week, he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease for the overspreading of abominations. He shall make it desolate, even the consummation and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Okay, so um, 70 weeks, right off the gate, out of the gate, we have to say uh, a week is a week of seven years in this case. It's called a heptad in the Hebrew. It's not a week of seven days. So 77 year periods, 490 years are determined upon the Jews and upon Israel. It's a 70 week prophecy, it's a 490 year period. Um, the first 69 weeks are important and it divides it in a few other ways. Um, um, but the, you know, basically the first 69 weeks, it tells us um, you know, what's gonna happen here. It says, know this and understand, from the time you know, the commandment comes to go and restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Remember when Daniel received this, he was in Babylon, Jerusalem was in rubble. <clears throat> so they were sitting around Babylon waiting for the chance to go back and restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And the Lord speaks to the angel to Daniel, says, when that commandment comes for you to go, start the stopwatch. And as it turns out, March 15th, 445 BC, is when Artaxerxes commanded, made the commandment to go and restore and rebuild Jerusalem. So Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel went and started that process. And that process took some time. And that's what this whole thing is about when it says, when the commandment to restore and rebuild um, will be three score, uh, seven weeks, which is the first seven years. That's how long it took them to do it. And then three score and two weeks, um, which uh, you divide that up, you know, into the, the first week, the, 60, the first of the six, 70 weeks, and then you have 68 weeks, which makes 69 altogether. I don't follow you, Brett. No big deal. <laughs> but the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem unto, uh, notice what it says there, unto the Messiah, the Prince, 
shall be seven weeks, three score and two weeks, which is a nice way of saying 69 weeks. 69 seven-year periods. So if you calculate, and you gotta use a Jewish calendar, not a, um, you know, it's not a Gregorian calendar like ours, a lunar-based calendar, um, and, and you gotta count the leap year issues and stuff like that. Uh, there's a guy who did uh, study that, Sir Robert Anderson, in a book called The Coming Prince, uh, back in, I think, like the 17 or 1800s. When did he write that book? Uh, did all the math of this. Um, but um, March 15th, 445, go 69 weeks in the future, or, um, you know, 483, because remember, it's not the 70 weeks, it's the 69 weeks, which is 483 years. If you go 483 years from the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, it brings you to April 6th, AD 32, which is the very day Jesus rode into Jerusalem, the Messiah, the Prince. Now you say, okay, Brad, that, that's, that's something. Well, it's more than something because because Jesus, do you remember what he said? Now we missed this in Mark's gospel, but do you remember what Jesus said in Luke's, the same account that we're reading here in Mark of Palm Sunday? In fact, go back to Mark now. I'll release you from the 70 weeks of Daniel uh, headache. Um, um, notice what it says here back in Mark 10 first. I'll show you this. Um, oh, pardon me, Mark 11, um, where um, Jesus uh, in verse 11, it says, and Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple. And when he had looked round about upon all these things, and now the evening time was coming, he went out to Bethany to, to the, um, with the 12. So he went to Jerusalem, looked around, and then went back to Mary Martha's house after he rode in Jerusalem on the triumphal entry. But Luke tells us more about that. You think, well, that's like him's visit to Jericho. He went into Jerusalem and left Jerusalem. Uh, what's going on here? Well, check out Luke's gospel. I'll do this for speed tonight just because we're in a hurry. But um, it says, and when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it. We didn't get that in Mark's gospel. Saying, if thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. How would they have known the day Jesus would have been riding in Jerusalem? Anybody? Daniel's 70 week prophecy. They should have known if they did the math they would have been waiting for that. Um, and it goes on, for the day shall come there in Luke upon thee that thine enemy shall cast a trench about thee, compass round about, and keep thee in on every side and shall lay thee even with the ground and with thy children within thee and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another because thou knowest not the time of thy visitation. Notice that last phrase. You didn't know when I was coming because you didn't know Daniel chapter nine, the 70 week prophecy. Um, oh, if you'd only known this thy day. Oh, wait a minute. This is the day. This is the day. Remember, right? See, we sing that song kind of out of context in our brains, at least. Uh, we can sing it like we do. I'm not knocking that. But, but the context of that is the Messiah riding into Jerusalem. Uh, they're yelling out Hosanna. They're quoting all that, you know, Psalm, Psalm 118 scripture, except for the this is the day part, because they don't even know that it's the day that the Messiah is writing in. I love how the Bible just, and, and I bet, I have a hunch you and I are only, we're not connecting hardly any of the dots. Do you ever get a sense that we're just like reading the Bible going, hey, I made a connection. <laughs> but there's like thousands of other connections because the longer I read the Bible, the more I just go, wow, everything is so perfect and precise. It's, the Bible is not a work of man. There's no way, it's impossible. Just on the way everything so perfectly lines up. Well, I'm in a hurry, so. Um, uh, back to our, mar uh, um, uh, well, let me just go one more thing about the donkey. Are you guys, one more thing? 
Uh, let's go to Genesis 49 real quick. Just, you can jot it down. I'll just read it really fast. Genesis 49, verses eight through 12. Judah is the lion's whelp. Now this is Jacob passing out the blessings and the curses to his 12 tribe sons. And he turns to his son Judah and says, Judah is a lion's whelp from the prey of my son. Thou art gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, uh, as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Now you guys know your Bible prophecy. Does anybody know when the scepter departed from Judah or Israel? Um, the, the rabbis and the, the, the Pharisees all wept AD 12 is when the Romans took away the Jews' power to govern themselves and took away their capital punishment, took away their authority. And the Jews wept and wept and wept. Why? Because this prophecy said their Messiah would come before they would be, lose their sovereignty as a nation. Little did they know a 12-year-old boy was sitting in Jerusalem confounding the high priests and talking, and he was the Messiah who'd come before that came. Totally fulfilling the scepter prophecy, but I'm not even supposed to talk about that part yet. It's the next verse, okay? You know the scepter prophecy, but look at verse 11. Binding, it says, you know, the scepter, Shiloh will come, which means peace, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be, listen, binding his foal unto the vine and his ass's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine or blood and his clothes were dipped in blood of grapes. Um, this, this is all imagery of Jesus, but notice the tying of the colt of a donkey to the vine is all imagery of Jesus and his donkey situation. Do you guys see that there? Uh, man, there's so much we could talk about, about um, you know, the prophecies that Jesus perfectly fulfilled. It wasn't a coincidence, as it turns out. Um, now, um, uh, Judah, by the way, means praise. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. So he pers perfectly fulfills all this. Um, now, the, the main point that I want to make with this, and this is where I can't believe churches blow off Bible prophecy, because they blew off Bible prophecy in Daniel 9, and they didn't know when the Messiah came. And um, I showed you the verse in Luke, you missed your visitation because you didn't discern the times. But meanwhile, the modern day church is like, yeah, whatever, we don't care about Bible prophecy. Um, this is a day that you and I should be searching the scriptures. We don't, there is a difference they knew the exact day when Jesus should have ridden in Jerusalem. Um, we won't know the day or the hour, but we'll know the times and seasons. Let me just wrap, wrap off a few quickies. First Thessalonians 5.4. But you, brethren, are not, speaking to the church, are not in darkness. That day should overtake you as a thief. In other words, we have the scriptures, our light. Matthew 24, Jesus said in verse 36, but of that day and hour, no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my father only. That's the only one who knows. Uh, unlike the Palm Sunday, we won't know the day. 1 Thessalonians 5.1 says, but of the times and seasons, brethren, have you no need that I write to you? In other words, we're gonna know the times and seasons and that's why we do prophecy updates to kind of just be discerning the times and watching what's going on. Well, I've got to hurry. We're running out of time. Uh, verse 11 from back to Mark 11. Where were we? Oh yes, no problem. <laughs> verse 11. And Jesus entered in Jerusalem and into the temple, looked around about. Oh, we look, we already did that one. Verse 12, and see, we're already gaining ground. Verse 12, and on the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry, amen. <laughs> Sorry. <clears throat> Verse 13, and seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves, 
He came, if haply he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto it, no man eat fruit of thee hereafter or forever. And his disciples heard it. Now you Portlandia people are like, oh, he cursed the poor little fig tree. <laughs> Give it a hug. Um, well, there's a, there's a reason. He's cursing the fig tree and he's gonna use this as a teaching moment here in a second. Verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem and Jesus went into the temple and began to cast them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. Now, this is something people miss. In Mark's gospel, he gives you the, he wouldn't allow people to carry vessels around, which means he stopped the sacrifice in the temple. You, you can't make sacrifice unless you're carrying vessels. So it's more than just turning the money changers. He actually stopped the sacrifice, the whole process of sacrifice in the temple. Jesus put a halt to it because of verse 16. And he taught saying unto them, it, is it not written? My father's house shall be called uh, uh, of all nations, the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. That's Isaiah 56, verse seven. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and saw it, how they might destroy him. For they feared him because all the people were astonished at his doctrine. And when evening was come, he went out of the city. And in the morning, as they passed by, he saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter calling to remembrance said to them, Master, behold the fig tree, which thou cursed is withered away. Now, um, you know, this, is, this seems like such a scattered story, but all these things are all linked. The fig tree, and, and I, got, I wish that we had more time for this, but is a symbol of Israel. Now you'll hear prophecy guys say, Israel's not a, ever been a type of a fig tree. You'll hear people say that. I understand their arguments, um, uh, especially when it comes to Matthew chapter 24. I, I understand what they're saying. I'm not even saying I totally disagree with them. But I do believe, I would disagree when they say fig tree was never a picture of Israel. Jot it down in your notes, Hosea 9.10. The fig tree is typified by Israel. Jeremiah chapter 24. Uh, and also a fig tree that bears no fruit. Jeremiah chapter 8 verse 13. I believe the fig tree is a typifying of the, the temple in Jerusalem that was all show but no fruit. Um, that's, the, that's the temple that Jesus is looking at. And he uses this as a teaching moment. Um, and um, by the way, why is verse 11 there when Jesus looked around and then he went back to Bethany and then he came back the next day? Before he flipped tables, he slept on it. Did you notice that? Mark's gospel is the only one we see that where he went into Jerusalem, looked around everywhere, saw the changes of money sitting and all the stuff that he saw, went and spent the night, came back the next day and turned the tables. I think it's a good model in uh, giving ample time to respond rather than react in anger. Uh, Jesus was controlled anger. Mom and dad, remember that when you're dealing with discipline, control and time. Um, but uh, Jesus stops the whole sacrificial system. Um, and, um, and, uh, and so he answers this Peter question in verse 22. And Jesus answering said to them, have, have faith in God. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you, what things soever you desire when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. And when you stand praying, forgive. If you uh, have aught against any, that your father 
also, which is in heaven, may forgive you uh, of your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father, which is in heaven, forgive you of your trespasses. We've covered this in previous chapters and books of Matthew. But notice things, a couple of things. The object of faith, number one, is God, verse 22. Jesus says, have faith in God. Not faith in faith, not faith in yourself, faith in God. Tell evangelists, preach, if you have enough faith, just name it and claim it, blab it and grab it. Where does that come from? First bag of balonians. That, that's, that's just people making stupid stuff up. Uh, but uh, having faith in God is the key. Um, so we have the object of faith is God, but the outpouring of faith is bold statements that whatsoever you shall say, your mouth, the outpouring of faith. Um, you know, in verse 24, you know, whatsoever things you desire, then pray and believe that you can receive them. Um, this is having faith in the Lord. Now, um, remember, when you ask things of the Lord, it has to also be within the Lord's nature. So if you're driving down the freeway and somebody's slowly, you know, with their blinker on and they're sitting there slow blocking all the traffic um, and you say, in the name of Jesus, I ask for that person's car to explode into burst in flames <laughs> and uh, so I can keep driving to work faster. Um, well, that's called asking amiss. That's not the heart of the Lord. Um, James 4, 3, you know, uh, you ask but receive not because you ask amiss, James says. And make sure your desires line up with his. You know, Psalm 37, 4, delight in your Lord, the Lord, and he will give thee the desires of your heart. Changing your desires to be in line with his is the idea. The obstacle to faith is harboring unforgiveness. If you don't forgive, Jesus says, then the Lord's not gonna hear your prayer. So unforgiveness is a dastardly, horrible thing. And then quickly as we wrap it up, verse 27, and they come again to Jerusalem and as he was walking in the temple, there came to him chief priests, uh-oh, scribes, oh no, and elders, oh my. <laughs> All three of these guys. Uh, and they, they, they said to him, by what authority dost thou these things? And who gave thee this authority to do these things? And Jesus answered um, and said unto them, I will also ask one question of you and, and, and answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? Answer me. And they reasoned with themselves saying, if we shall say from heaven, he will say to them, why didn't you believe in him? Believe him. But if we shall say of men, they feared the people for all men counted John, that he was a prophet indeed. And they answered and unto Jesus, we cannot tell. And Jesus answering said unto them, neither do I tell these by what authority I do these things. Don't mess with Jesus, man. He, he's the ultimate debater. Uh, these guys were just hypocrites and Jesus knew how to call them out. Um, by the way, if you think you're gonna stand before God and give him a piece of your mind, this is how that's gonna look. Uh, be careful, don't do that, don't play that game. Well, there we go. Lord, we pray your blessing on these people. If we take this time to study these chapters, may it bring good fruit in our lives. Give us more understanding of these scriptures and I pray your blessing as we go our way tonight. Uh, just um, the rest of this week, may our light so shine before all men. Help us to live with anticipation of your soon return um, with that eminence at the forefront of our minds. In Jesus' name, amen.